0: Welcome to episode 22 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. Got a handful of things to talk about this week. Obviously, Israel Adesanya is now the undisputed middleweight champion, so I'm going to talk about uh, what this means for him and then also talk about the fight that he had with Robert Whitaker. I'll recap the rest of that card at UFC 243, run all the way through that. Then I've got a preview for UFC Tampa, a card that, at least on the top of the card, doesn't seem like it's that great of an event, but when you start looking at some of the other fights that are on the line up there, it's actually a really deep card, so I'll go through all of those. We've got Kevin Lee uh, making his return to lightweight against Gregor Gillespie, who hasn't fought since January. He's a guy who a lot of people think has potential to be a really tough style matchup for Khabib, and he's finally going to get an opportunity against a, a really highly ranked top lightweight, where if he gets a win here and if he gets a dominant win, he could find himself in the title picture by the end of next year. So this is a real big opportunity for him, so I'll talk about that. We also have some more coverage from ADCC. I did a video on this, but I'll sort of recap what was in that video and talk about Nick Rodriguez, and what sort of lessons are, are to be learned from him, him being a D3 wrestler and BJJ blue belt with 15 year, or fifteen months of experience going into ADCC and making a run all the way to the finals. I'll also look at a um, situation that sort of popped up on Twitter after Michael Bisping filmed a podcast where he showed that he could actually like take out part of his eye. Uh, so talk about um, that whole situation there. And then the final thing I'll cover is a recap of Bellator 229. Uh, So let's go right into that main event at UFC 243 between Israel Adesanya and Robert Whittaker. And it really feels like Israel had scouted out Whittaker, found an opportunity for him to be successful, and really leaned into it. And I I think what what he was doing, what I'm talking about more specifically, is that he seemed to realize that whenever he'd get into the pocket with Whittaker, Whittaker would start throwing wide punches. So what he would do is sort of lean back and stay just out of range of those punches and then be able to throw his own punches while he was still in the pocket and landed a lot of really good shots, was able to drop Whitaker uh, on a counter at the end of the first round, and then was able to get that finishing sequence in the second round. When I was watching it, it was one of those things where it's like, look, Adesanya, like, maybe this is a read that he's making, maybe it's going to work out for him, but if he doesn't land his shot quick, like this could be a problem for him. Because when you're leaning back like that in the pocket, there are a lot of issues with doing that in MMA. And in particular you're leaving yourself at, at risk of getting head kicked, which would occur like he was pretty close to landing one in the second round or landing a, a fight altering one in the second round. Uh, but there's also when you're kind of leaning back like that, if you throw a couple of punches, get the guy leaning back expecting a, a big overhand and then all of a sudden you shoot it on a takedown. He's not going to be in a great position to be able to defend that takedown. And though Robert Whitaker isn't like a Damian Meyer or a Jacare. He still got very good jiu-jitsu, and had he, been, had he been able to get a takedown, that could have caused some issues for Israel. Uh, but Israel was able to to, to land off of that. He, he was able to make it work. I don't think it's something that he's going to do with every other, other opponent. It's not something I've seen him do before. And so for someone like Boshin, it's not as though you could say, hey, if he, he got away with it against Whitaker, but what, how about when he faces Paulo Costa? I don't know that he's going to do the same thing with Costa, but it, it was just an interesting thing to see. But at the end of the day, he gets the knockout win there. Uh, Whitaker takes the loss. You feel really bad for Whitaker because he's he's had a lot of health issues uh, ever since he won that title. He, I mean, when you look at the conditions of him winning the title in the first place, he probably should have had the chance to fight against Michael Bisping, but then Jordan St. Pierre comes out of nowhere, just pops up into the division and gets the undisputed title. Thankfully, or thankfully GSP gave away that title after like seven days, like, yeah, I'm not actually going to defend this. So Whitaker got to keep his title. Uh, but it seems like it's been forever, though, since that first interim title fight where he he won the first belt against uh, Yoel Romero, then the one defense he had against Yoel Romero. Uh, a lot of different health issues, in particular that one before the Gastelum fight where he had that, um, I think it was a hernia, where had he fought through it, he, he could have potentially died. So for him, there's there a lot of effort in terms of making him a huge star in Australia. This was his big fight where he, he's got a whole stadium of Australians there to watch him, and unfortunately for him, he loses and he loses by knockout. Now with that being said, Adesanya can also build a, star, or build a a big name for himself as well. So it's not as though it's like a wasted opportunity where they set him up to become a star by having him fight in Australia, and then all of a sudden he loses. So though Whitaker's not going to get the shine that he potentially could have, Adesanya's going to be able to take a lot of it, and I think that's still good for the UFC. Uh, so I do feel bad for him, though, but for Adesanya, very happy for him. He's one of these guys where, when you look at what it takes for a fighter to be a superstar... In terms of both what they do and then also what sort of qualities they possess, Adesanya's got everything. I don't know whether or not he's quite at the level where you can call him a superstar yet. Now, granted, he's I'm sure he's huge in Nigeria. I'm sure he's huge in New Zealand. Um, so with this being a global sport, you, you could argue he's already a superstar. Uh, but even someone like Conor McGregor, who's huge in Ireland, he's also big in the States. And I don't know that Adesanya's gotten quite that big in the States quite yet. Uh, but it seems like a lot of the stuff he does is going to put him on the right path for it. Uh, for one, this is a guy who understands that as a professional athlete, you are also a professional entertainer, and he really leans into that heavily. Uh, we saw that with that walkout. The walkout was fantastic, very unique, uh, polarizing in a way where if if you like him, then you're going to like him even more after that. If you don't like him, then you're like, oh, I hope this cocky guy who's doing that dance gets knocked out. And he even said as much in the post-fight interview, so he's aware of that. He's a guy who goes out of his way to give interviews to a lot of uh, the bigger media in the MMA space because he knows that when you look at the, the bigger media in the MMA space th- these are people who are putting on shows that a lot of MMA fans are watching so if you can get your name out there if you can get your voice out there and be in front of the MMA fans that's a that's a good way for you to build your name and for you to become a bigger star so he, he puts in the work there at least with the media he understands that he has to be an entertainer his fighting style just as it is is entertaining as it is the one area with him that I, I'm concerned about and I I don't know that this fight is completely cleared. My concern is that he's coming into this sport from kickboxing. He, no one is under the belief that he's got elite level wrestling. No one's under the belief that he has elite level grappling. So the question with him is you're fighting at the top of a division. You're going to be going against guys who are elite in those areas and who are very good about getting a fight into that specific area. So what are you going to be able to do either to, to handle something like that? Or if you end up having to fight in that area, how are you going to be able to survive in those waters? And, I still feel like even though he's getting better every fight, and he really does get better every fight, he's a guy, and one of my big pet peeves from a training standpoint with MMA fighters is they start getting into this habit where they go into training camps, so if they have a fight, okay, well, I've got a fight scheduled in three months, I'll I'll, I'll take a 10-week camp and then prepare for that, but the thing is, like, the difference between training in a training camp and then training where you're just training to improve, uh, it's very different, especially if you have to worry about your weight, and what I see with Israel Adesanya is someone who, whether he's got a fight lined up or not, he's always training and he's always working to improve. And you see just major improvements in his game throughout each fight, and that's especially noticeable in the grappling area, obviously, because that's where there's, mo- there's the most room for improvement. But you worry with him where, is he going to bite off more than he can chew a little bit too fast? The talk of the John Jones fight, I think, is really where that, where that comes from, where it's like, I don't think he's ready for John Jones quite yet. He was talking a lot about him a lot before the fight, but after the fight was over, he then called on Paulo Borrushinia which at least from a skill standpoint is a little bit more manageable for him. He's very confident about it. It seems as though he, he's seen enough of Paulo where he feels confident that he's going to win that fight. I don't think that's going to be an easy fight for him by any stretch. I believe Paulo is a black belt, although I don't know that Paulo is going to try to take him down and beat him up. Although it wouldn't shock me if that was part of the game plan. Um, but to me, at least from a personality standpoint, Israel has what it takes to be a superstar. Uh, it, it seems like he understands how to market himself. So that part's good. Uh, the important part, though, in terms of fighting and being able to stay on top, that's one of those things where it's like, I, I'm sure he'll get there. I just don't, I, I don't know if he's quite there yet. He, he's had some favorable matchups so far. He hasn't really had to deal with a, a dominant wrestler quite yet. Paulo is not exactly going to be that guy. Cannon Ears of the guy at the top of the weight class. He's not going to be that guy quite yet. But I feel like at some point that, that guy is going to come soon and he's got to be ready for him. He's getting closer to the point where I think he's ready for him, but I don't think he's quite there yet. So hopefully for him, he, he doesn't rush things along, but it seems like he's done a good enough job in terms of pacing things, uh, picking the right fights at the right time. And now he's the UFC middleweight champion. And looks like a, a lot of potential for him to really grow off of this and become a, a giant star. Uh, as far as the rest of the card goes, though, on the coming event, we had Al Quinta versus Dan Hooker. Really tough, stylistic matchup for Ali Quinta. Ali quinta has got solid, pretty good, but solid wrestling. Uh, pretty good boxing, but if you can find a guy like Hooker who is going to be able to just outstrike him on the feet, it, it makes it tough for Iaquinta where he's got to be able to dominate the wrestling, and he wasn't able to do that. Hooker did a really good job of using his range on him and was able to just outstrike him pretty badly. Landed a lot of really good leg kicks in the first round that ended up forcing Quinta to change stance for much of the next two rounds. And in-, in the end, Hooker gets a dominant unanimous decision win. Fight before that, we had Tai Avassa, who at one point was 10-0. Uh, very athletic, heavyweight, bit, hits really hard. Wasn't like the most technical striker, but he was just one of those guys who was a scary good athlete, uh, really strong, has, has a lot of power, and he was able to put a lot of lot of guys away in doing that. Uh, but over time, uh, his opponents, he's gotten to the point where he's, he's fighting higher-level opponents where either their grappling's at a level where they can actually take him down uh, or their striking's at a level where they can start picking him apart. And in this fight with Spivak, I mean, Ty had some nice exchanges early in the first round on the feet, but whenever the fight went to the ground, especially once it did go to the ground, he just felt like he was lost there. Even in the loss that he had to Junior Dos Santos, he didn't look that good on the ground once Junior got him there. And it seems like, at least from what I hear, it sounds like his training is mostly working on the stand-up, and then his grappling is more so defensive wrestling than it is like jiu-jitsu. So, if you're able to get past his defensive wrestling and actually get him to the ground, it still looks like he's at a point where he doesn't have a whole lot of answers there, and for him on a three fight losing streak, you got to figure something out here quick. But just things are not looking very good for him. It seems like he's got some star potential. I don't think he's going to be released after this three fight losing streak. I think he's done enough, at least on the entertainment side, and in terms of building a fan base where the UFC will still keep him around. But it's tough to have him keep you around after four straight losses. And that means that the next fight, if he does get one in the UFC, is going to be do or die for him. Uh, the fight before that, we had Diego Lima getting a split decision win over Luke Jumo. And then on the first fight on the main card, Jorgen Castro with just an enormous knockout of Justin Taffa. Uh, Taffa was just charging in looking for an overhand, and then Jorgen just clipped him while he was on, on his way in, uh, and knocked him out, and he just kind of fell forward with his forward momentum, uh, face planted, and no additional punches were needed. That was enough for the knockout for Jorgen Castro. On the prelims, we had Jake Matthews against uh, Rostam Akman. Matthews won that, ma- or won that fight 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards. Kellen Potter were with a unanimous decision over Maki Pitolo. Brad Riddell uh, defeated Jamie Malarkey in just a wild fight. Malarkey took a ton of huge shots. Uh, his face was completely battered by the end of it, but somehow was able to survive it. I don't know how he wasn't knocked out, but... I, I, I guess... Not Not every fighter's got that toughness in them, but the ones who do, they've only got a few fights where they can, where they can take those kind of shots and survive, and... That's definitely one that you can notch off the notch off for Malarkey, but Riddell gets the win there, and I'm sure he'll have some other big opportunities left for him in the UFC now that he, he got that win, and he's a part of that city city kickboxing camp with Dan Hooker, Israel Adesanya, Alex Oleksynovsky, and then we had Megan Anderson with a triangle choke over Zara Fern or Zara uh, and then on the early prelims, Ji Yun Kim, TKO Nadia Kasim, and then Kalataha got a arm triangle win over Bruno Silva. So in terms of what's going on next week, we have a lot of really good cards on these UFC Tampa cards. So the main event is going to be Michelle Waterson versus Ioana Janjajek. I think the idea being here that the winner, uh, depending on the health of Tatiana Suarez, could be next in line for a title fight. I, I think at this point it makes the most sense for Tatiana to be next in line. Uh, we don't know what Rose Nama Yunus wants to do. It, it's still been a little while since her loss to Jessica Andrade, and she hasn't really come out and said what she wants to do. So it, it doesn't look like... She's coming back anytime soon, and if she does, I don't know that she'd go right back into a title fight. So there is an opportunity here for the winner to potentially slide into a title fight, depending on the status of Tatiana Suarez and whether or not her neck and back injury is still taken care of. Uh, but the fights that I think more fans uh, would be genu- genu- generally interested in, uh, the coming event we have, Cub Swanson versus Kron Gracie. So Kron came into the UFC, fought Alex Caceres, had a dominant win there. Cub Swanson is going to be an interesting one. And then at least on paper, Cubs got very good boxing and he's also a black belt in too. But that, with that being said, Cub has been submitted many a times in the UFC. So it's not as though if Kron gets him down, that he's going to have like the hardest of hard, the hardest of times to get a submission. I think if Kron is able to get this fight to the mat, he should do fine. It'll just be a question of, is he able to get the fight to the mat? And with Cub Swanson being the boxer that he is, um, what kind of shots is he going to have to take on the way in? What kind of setups is, setups is he going to use? And so for me, uh, I have a hard time saying that Cub Swanson isn't going to win this fight because I feel like he, he should be able to. Yes, Kron has the, a major advantage on the ground, but Kron's stand-up, there, there's still a lot more to be desired there. And, I, I mean, it's tough. Like, for, for Kron it, it's hard to pick against Kron because he, he is undefeated. I didn't think he'd look as good as he did against against Caceres, and he was able to get him down once he did. It, it just was only a matter of time. Can I see Kron if he gets his hands on Cub, taking Cub down? Probably, and for that reason, I'm, I'm having a hard time just saying outright that I think Cub's going to win this fight, but as long as this fight stays standing, as long as it's in the boxing ranges, like you're, you're going to have to figure that Cub Swanson's going to land some really good shots. So it'll be interesting to see if Cub does land a good shot, is Kron going to be able to take it and eat it and just walk through it? Uh, is he going to back up and try to recoup and be on his back foot for the most part? Because if, if Cub gets... Kron to a point where Kron's having to walk backwards and constantly move backwards to try to avoid some of the shots. It's going to be a long night for Kron. Kron's going to have to keep moving forward and keep a forward pressure. And if he has to take some shots and keep moving forward despite those, um, that's really going to say a lot. So I think this is going to be one of those fights where, like, in the first 30 seconds or first minute, um, even if it ends up going to a decision, you'll, you'll know who's probably going to win by, by the end of that first um, 30 seconds. The uh, fight before that, we have Brock Weaver versus Thomas Gifford. Weaver made a little bit of a name for himself on the Tuesday night contender series. I don't know if this is his UFC debut or not, but for him, he's a guy who I think some of the guys that the UFC have identified as a potential future star, so it'll be a good opportunity for him. Then we have Mackenzie Dern making her return after the pregnancy, fighting against Amanda Rivas. Uh, Both of these girls are high-level jiu-jitsu competitors. Obviously, Mackenzie Dern, former world champion, Rivas has fought on EBI, so she's pretty good in her own right. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if this fight does go to the ground, if Dern is going to have enough of an advantage for her to dominate from there. Um, If it doesn't go to the ground, what's Dern's striking going to look like? Obviously, we know that Dern doesn't have very technical striking, but she does like the wing punches, and when she swings as hard as she can, at at times she can hurt some people. Uh, She's definitely dropped some girls in the past. So is it just going to be a a wild striking exchange? Is Rebus just going to try to keep this fight on the feet and just outbox her? So uh, another very interesting style matchup, one where you you've got an excellent former world class or former world champion black belt and grappler, uh, going up against another high level grappler themselves who isn't quite at the same level as as the other one, but still still can definitely put up a fight. Then we have Matt Fervola versus Luis Pena, and then Eric Anders and Gerald Mearshart on the prelims, and this is an excellent fight, main of the prelims on ESPN Plus. You have Nico Price versus James Vick, who's moving up from lightweight. Vic made it into the top 15 at lightweight, uh, but then had a rough time uh, moving his way up from there. Had some losses, including to Justin Gaethje, also to uh, Paul Felder. So now he's moving up uh, to Walter Wade, where I think he's really belonged this whole time. He's always been a gigantic lightweight. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he does here, but Nico Price is a, a really dangerous guy, uh, has a lot of power himself, and if Vic has any questions about his chin after the last handful of fights that he's had at lightweight, this is... This is going to be a real test for him, but hopefully without the weight cut, it'll be a little bit easier for him. Fight before that, we have Ryan Spann versus Devin Clark. Then we have Max Griffin versus Alex Morono. Uh, really good fight here in Davison Figueredo, and Tim Elliott. Uh, really high-level flyweight fight that's just buried on the bottom of the card. Uh, but this one I'm really excited about. Figueredo is always a fun guy to watch, and Elliott, though, at least in the striking realm, isn't as exciting as Figueredo. His grappling is always exciting. He's, al- he's always looking for takedowns. When he gets guys down, he's al- always hunting for chokes had that fight with Mighty Mouse where he got close to, to choking him in the first round. Uh, so I really expect a, an exciting fight out of this one. I don't know if I'd say I don't know if I'd pick it to be fight of the night, but it it'll definitely be up there. Uh, then we have Marlon Chido Vera versus Andre Yule. Miguel Baeza versus Hector Aldana. And though we're used to a lot of twelve fight cards, this one's actually gonna go fourteen deep. So we've got two more. So we got Marvin Vittori, who had a split decision loss to the current champion Israel Adesanya, which in a way it shows how good Adesanya has gotten in a short period of time but it also tells you how good Vittori is. is not a guy who who people generally run through. He's a guy who usually either wins his fights or is very difficult to get through if you end up do beating him or if you end up beating him. And Andrew Sanchez will have that have that task ahead of him. And then on the first fight in the card we have JJ Aldrich versus Lauren Mueller. So next thing I want to talk about is a big fight that was just announced at lightweight and that's between Gregor Gillespie and Kevin Lee. So for Kevin Lee, it means that after a very short stint at welterweight where he fought RDA, he's moving back down, and it looks like he's going to be fighting a three-round fight, which will be good for him. And for Gregor Gillespie, he had that fight against um, Yancy Medeiros, but hasn't really had an opportunity to face a lot of the top guys. Now, from what I hear, it's not a Gregor Gillespie issue where he doesn't want those fights. I think it's more of an issue of a lot of those guys who are ranked don't want to fight Gregor Gillespie. So for Kevin Lee to, to put his name in the hand, and say, you know what, I'll, I'll do it, I'll fight Gregor, that, that says a lot of good things about Kevin Lee in terms of his willingness and his gameness to, to go there or to to get in there with some of the better guys in the division, even if they don't have a big name to themselves for Gregor. If he does get a win here, it really moves himself. It really moves him up the ladder pretty fast. And for that reason, if for no other, this is a fight I really want to see because I think Gregor has the potential to be a top guy. We've seen how far Khabib could, could if has gotten in this division, being a guy whose striking is at least effective enough in terms of getting the fight into the wrestling realms. Uh, But then once he's able to get the fight to the mat, he's able to dominate on the mat. There are a lot of similarities there with him and Gregor. Now, Khabib's a lot better on the mat than Gregor is. I think Gregor's better at wrestling in open space than Khabib is. Khabib's probably better at wrestling on the fence. Uh, But that being said, there are are enough similarities there where I understand why Kevin Lee wants to fight, because Kevin Lee's been saying for a while that he's got the style to beat Khabib. And a dominant win over Gregor Gillespie definitely makes that argument a lot more believable than it is right now. So for Kevin Lee, if he gets a really dominant win over Gregor Gillespie, he might not be that far off on a fight from Khabib. Like, you mm-hmm. beat Gregor, you're probably a couple more fights of lightweight before you're ready for a title fight. So in that way, especially with Kevin Lee, too, because Kevin Lee is a marketable guy, so he's one of those guys where if he gets a little bit of momentum going for him, especially now that he's with TriStar and he can at least sell that angle as well, where it's like, well, now that I have Faraz Hobby behind me, now that I've... Got GSP's coach behind me, and I'm starting to fight more like GSP. Like I'm, I'm ready for it. He, he could go a long way for Gregor though. If Gregor gets the win here, man, like I, I, don't know, I don't know what's gonna be next for Gregor if he gets a win over Kevin Lee. But I can't imagine that he's gonna be too far off on a title shot on, on his own. Uh, we're looking right now in a division where a lot of guys are busy at the top. Uh, things change quickly. Uh, but it feels like if he gets a win here against Kevin Lee if he can get a couple more fights in, he may be fighting for the title by the end of 2020. So this is a real big opportunity for him. And I know mean, Nurmagomedov has talked about how he doesn't want to fight a whole lot more that he's looking at maybe a fight with Tony, a fight with GSP, and maybe one more fight with Connor. Um, but if he can stick around just long enough for Gregor Gillespie to be the guy that everyone clamors to see him fight, that may be a fight that we get to see down the line. it's one that I'd hope to see. And really what's interesting to me about Gregor is that even though he doesn't have that big of a name yet in, in terms of like in the rankings or in terms of in a lot of fans' minds, I don't think there are a ton of fans who know how, just how good he is yet. There seems to be a lot of curiosity surrounding him. And after that fight that he had with Yancey Medeiros, I put up a little post-fight study on that fight with Yancey. And to date, that's one of my better-performing videos where, like, just on a random week, uh, YouTube sometimes tells you, like, here are, like, the top three performing videos over the last 48 hours. A lot of times, that Gregor Gillespie video is among those top videos. And that tells me that there are a lot of people who are out there who who want to learn more about him, want to see more about him, who at least have heard that this guy is a really good fighter, but they haven't seen enough of him in the octagon yet to to sort of um, substantiate that. And if he's able to get a dominant win here on, on a big showcase event, uh, I think this is probably going to be a coming event for that uh, Nate Diaz versus Horry all fight. This could really go a long way for Gregor, and it could really explode his name. So definitely a fight I'm looking forward to, and I hope both guys stay healthy and this fight actually does go through. Next thing to talk about is Nick Rodriguez at ADCC. So for those of you who aren't aware, Nick Rodriguez... Wrestled D3 in college. I think his record in high school was 111 and 17, Um, but then went on to wrestle in D3. I think he was like 30 and 4, something like that. And then after his freshman year, decided that he was was done with college. Wanted to like get into modeling. Uh, Started working out a lot too. Put on I think like 60 pounds of muscle, uh, something I've seen like that. Uh, But also picked up jujitsu. And 15 months in, he ends up competing in ADCC which is the highest, or it's just the most prestigious overall um, Jiu-Jitsu tournament, or at least grappling tournament out there. Now, with most Jiu-Jitsu tournaments, they don't penalize you for pulling guard, um, whereas with ADCC they do. So ADCC itself is called a submission wrestling tournament, but it, it just generally works out where the guys who do the best at this particular tournament, though it's open to wrestling, though it's open to Jiu-Jitsu, though it's open to Sambo, it, it's almost always Jiu-Jitsu guys who qualify, and it's almost Jiu-Jitsu guys who win. So for Nick Rodriguez to come in as a guy who had 15 months of jujitsu, um, but his most notable grappling experience was wrestling, for him to come in and have so much success, it, it definitely got a lot of people's attention. And I think a lot of people are trying to look at what happened there and how is he able to do so well? Um, what about it is his wrestling? What about it is just Nick Rodriguez? Like, how did this happen? So I went through all of his matches. I looked at what happened just in terms of w- what happened. He had four matches. So his first match was against a guy named Muhammad Ali. Ali was a 2018 Black Belt World Champion. His second match was against Orlando Sanchez. Orlando Sanchez was a 2015 ADCC World Champion, obviously Black Belt himself. His third match was against Roberto Saibor Breu multiple-time World Champion. And in the finals, he went against Kynan Dwarch, who was the current 2019 Black Belt World Champion in, in the gi. So in his first match, it was primarily a wrestling match. So... It was a whole, the match was 15 minutes long. The way that, f- f- from what I heard in terms of how ADCC likes to score, if I shoot in on a takedown and you like go for a guillotine attempt off of it and I get away, they would actually reward me more than they would reward you for that guillotine a- attempt because they were really trying to reward people who were pushing the action. And for the most part, Nick Rodriguez was pushing the action. But with that being said, the closest takedown attempts in that match actually belonged to Ali. Ali had one where they ended up like going on top of the photographers when they were off the mat. Um, but Ali finished that takedown on top. Um, But with the the way that the scoring works, it's not as though once you take someone down, then you get the points. It's once you take them down, you have to be able to keep them down and keep their shoulders down for three seconds. So he didn't get any points for that one. Uh, Then at the end of the overtime period, he gets a double leg takedown, uh, but isn't able to hold him down there. So had it been like folk style or freestyle, he gets the points for the takedown, but he didn't get the points there because Rodriguez was able to get up. Um, So in the end, Rodriguez wins that match just by having more attempts than Ali did, even though Ali's attempts were a little bit closer. So, in the end, zero points scored, zero submissions. Then we have the second match where he goes against Orlando Sanchez. This one was, I, I would argue, it was his best match. So, off the start, he's able to get a takedown on Sanchez where he um, sort of, like, drags it. I, I don't remember if it was, like, a collar. It was, definitely wasn't a collar drag because they weren't wearing collars. Um, but he, like, dragged it, snapped his head by, came off to the side, um, put him on his back. Sanchez then um, turtled up to avoid giving up the two for the takedown. And while he was turtled up, Nick Rodriguez was able to take his back, uh, attack for some submissions, wasn't able to find anything, and then Orlando gets away and then it gets back to his feet. Now, this was during the first five-minute period where there was no scoring. So had there been scoring, it would have been three points for Rodriguez, but there was no scoring at that period, at that point, so he got zero points. Uh, the match goes along. Orlando Sanchez just gets gassed out, can't keep up with Nick Rodriguez's pace, gets a negative point, and Nick Rodriguez wins um, zero to zero and a negative point. So technically in that match, zero submissions, zero points again. Although I, I think to his credit, you should probably say he he could he could have gotten three points out of that. So for what it's worth, I'll say he got three points. Then in his match with Cyborg Abreu, Abreu decides, you know what, I'm probably not gonna have the wrestling to beat this guy in the wrestling. Like if I'm gonna beat him, I'm going to beat him with Jiu-Jitsu. So he pulls guard right off the bat. Is uh, trying to work um, work for sweeps, work for submissions. But for the most part, with Nick Rodriguez he really seemed to understand what he was good at and what he wasn't. And what he was good at um, was getting into wrestling positions. He figured that for the most part, he'd be able to defend against a lot of takedowns from his opponents, which he was right for the most part. And he also figured that if he got into a position where he was like in a front headlock position where he can potentially either hit a sprawl and go behind or down block go behind or anything else he needed to do to, to get to someone's back, that he'd be able to do that. But when he was in a situation where he had to pass guard, He didn't ever put himself in a position where his opponents could get underneath his hips or could really load up his weight. He really tried to pass from the outside. That's why he would do a lot of those cartwheel passes and make those really big movements. It wasn't things where he'd be trying to cut through someone's guard, more so than it'd be him trying to go around someone's guard. Uh, So that's what we got for the most part with him and Cyborg, which is him trying to make some large movements to try to pass. On occasion, he'd be able to get Cyborg to turtle, and Cyborg would be able to um, roll through and get back to a guard. At the end of that first 10-minute period, Cyborg... um, had gotten to the top of his back. Um, didn't have both hooks and so he wasn't going to get points for the back. Uh, went for an armbar. Rodriguez did escape the armbar, but it, it was strained out at one point. But then from there, um, they go into the overtime period. You, you get some more wrestling exchanges where, where no one's really all that close to getting a takedown. And then in the end, Cyborg ends up losing the decision to Rodriguez. Because, again, Rodriguez made it look as though there were more attempts on his end. And if you look at that, again, zero points for Rodriguez, zero submissions. And so he gets the finals scoring zero points and submitting nobody. But in a rule set that penalizes people for, for pulling guard, in a rule set where um, it, it really awards people who make the first initial action, a guy like Rodriguez who is, who is shooting a lot, who is looking for a lot of attacks from the feet, who is more aggressive in the wrestling areas and on the ground would make a lot of large movements, whether it's a cartwheel pass attempt or whether he'd just like, try to dive underneath and then um, hit a double underpass. It was enough for him to get those decisions. So then he moves on, moves on to the finals, faces off against Kynan Dwarge. Has a really good pass attempt where he actually goes more, more so through a guard. He he's, tries to go for a body lock pass from the, um, from Butterfly guard. Kynan ends up uh, almost getting his guard pass as, as he uh, tries to recover. Rodriguez almost takes his back off of that, but then Kynan's able to recover and get back to a guard. From there, Kynan was getting annoyed with trying to load up Nick Rodriguez and sweep him, just get underneath him and sweep him. So he ends up just kicking him away, running up on a double leg. Uh, But unlike the other opponents, Kynan was actually able to finish that double leg, gets on top, gets his points, um, and then ultimately takes the back off of that as well. So Kynan Duarte gets the win in the finals against Nick Rodriguez. But even still, for a guy like Nick Rodriguez to have as as limited of training as he did and to go in there and get second at ADCC, which is such a prestigious tournament, it really showed a lot. And my biggest takeaways from it were, one, Nick Rodriguez knew exactly what where he was strong and where he was weak, and he did everything he could to avoid the weak weak parts. And quite frankly, as a competitor, that's what you're supposed to do. That's the right thing to do. But on top of that, he also appears to be a very quick learner, because there's a lot of stuff he was doing out there, a lot of awareness in terms of uh, some positions that aren't wrestling positions at all, where, where it showed that in the limited of time he has been training, he's he, he's learned a lot, and he's learned pretty quickly. So there's definitely a lot of talent on his end as well, um, but he also did a very good job of playing the game and playing the rules specifically to his skill set and not putting himself in positions where he knew that the Jiu-Jitsu guys were a lot better than him. So between him being very smart in terms of how he competed out there and between him learning pretty quick, he was able to do something that a lot of people don't do very often, and that's why he was able to make such a name for himself. Now, he did have a wrestling match that just happened yesterday against uh, Pat Downey, who's on the USA Wrestling team, and obviously that that didn't go well for him. Uh, For some people, I I think after he had such a great ADCC, people wanted to assume that he was a a better wrestler than he was, but I think that was a... I wanted to sort of bring it back down to reality and say, yeah, though he does have very good wrestling, he's not at the level of a world team member, but even still, a, a lot of cool stuff there, but... I definitely encourage you, if you're interested in Nick Rodriguez, to, to watch the video that I did on him, because uh, in that video I have a bunch of screenshots from all of his matches, and I explain what's going on uh, screenshot by screenshot, so it's a little bit better than just the audio of what I'm talking about in this podcast. Next thing to talk about is Michael Bisping and an eye injury that he suffered. So we knew that he had an eye injury back from that fight against Vitor Belfort, where he took that spinning heel kick. From there, it was sort of vague in terms of what the issues were with his eye Uh, Sometimes he's talking about how there had to be like oil in the eye. Sometimes um, they're saying, yeah, that he had to retire. And then once he retired, that he can get the eye fixed. Um, But in this podcast, he takes out like this chunk of his eye. It wasn't like a full ball. It seemed like it was more of like a like a semicircle, like sort of like the like a half of it. Um, But whatever the hell he pulled out there, I I think it made it pretty clear that his eye is definitely messed up and his right eye. I, I don't know if there's like any science that will eventually be able to fix it and be able to give him like an actual working eye in the future, but it seems as though right now he only has one working eye, and I think that was the case going into that fight with Kelvin Gastelum, which didn't make things any easier for him. Um, but you also have to wonder how many other fights he took with his eye just like that, where, where he had to have like that fake eye in. Um, but definitely... I don't know that Bisping's a guy who you couldn't respect before, but if you didn't respect him before, after seeing what, what he dealt with and what he continued to fight with, you have to respect him now. Uh, and then the last thing to talk about is Bellator. Uh, so they had an event, uh, Bellator 229, that was taking place in Temecula, California. The main event was Andre Koreshkov and Lorenz Larkin. Split decision win for, for Lorenz. Lorenz was dropped early in the fight. Uh, looked like he was getting pretty close to finish, but was able to get back up and survive. Ended up uh, dropping karashkov a couple other times later on in the fight. So, excellent fight, uh, but Larkin gets the win there, and that's good for Larkin, because when he came into the Bellator, he was a top-ten UFC welterweight. Uh, a lot was expected of him. Had a fight with, with Douglas Lima. Didn't get the win there. And he sort of has struggled to get to the top of the Bellator-Welterweight division. And being a guy who's a former champion, karashkov it, it definitely helps him and gives him some momentum where he can work his way towards the title fight now. I don't know that he's Quite yet ready to fight the winner of the Lima versus McDonald rematch, but after getting this win, it doesn't seem like he's too far away either. Uh, Then we had Goti Yamauchi get an armbar win over Sada Wad. uh, And then some other fights of interest. Carrie Melendez, Gilbert's wife, got a win. Uh, Joe Schilling got knocked out by Tony Johnson. Schilling, uh, from my understanding, he was injured going into this fight where one of his arms was already jacked up, and then his other arm got jacked up in the first round of this one. That being said, one of the downsides of having a long kickboxing career before getting an MMA is oftentimes you're taking a lot of shots, both in sparring and then also in fights. And so your chin sort of goes. And I feel like with Joe Schilling, he's been knocked out a, a handful of times pretty pretty brutally in MMA. And you almost wonder, even though he does have a lot of the offensive skills, the defense is starting to get to a point where it's not quite where it used to be. And that's going to make it tough for him to, to really make a name for himself on the MMA side. So a, a bit unfortunate there. Uh, then on the prelims, uh, probably the most. Uh, outstanding performance was from Joey Davis who was an undefeated Division II wrestler at Notre Dame um, but he's been making a name for himself with his knockouts uh, and so had a spectacular knockout here against Jeff Peterson Granted, Davis is now 5-0, Peterson is now 9-8 and eight. so it's not like they were giving him like a super hard guy to deal with but even still every fight he's had so far he's looked really good and he looks like a guy who could potentially make a deep run once he's, once he's ready to start going against the best guys in his division uh, Derek Anderson got a win over Guillermo Vasconcelos. And then Anatoly Tokov with a win over Racho Darpinian. So that covers it for this week. Next week might be a little bit different, so I'm probably going to be out of town. And typically when I p- record these podcasts, I do them on Sundays. I don't know what time I'm, be- I'm going to be getting home on Sunday. So what I'm thinking I might do right now, and this isn't like set in stone, but what I'm thinking what I'll probably do is just do like a special edition podcast where I just um, talk about like a general topic that I don't need to wait for fights to end on. So the topic will probably be looking at all of the UFC champions that are current champions right now and looking at what fighters I think have the best chance of dethroning them. So I might do a special podcast that's just on that and then do the normal podcast where I'm covering the fights that happen and the fights that are coming up uh, and then release that either early or midweek, not next week, but the week after. So, so we'll see how that works out. Um, But obviously Great fights ahead. We've got the fights with Chrome Gracie. We've got Yoni and JTX returning. We have um, Mackenzie Dern. So, a lot to look forward to there. Uh, So, that'll cover it for this week, and uh, hope you guys enjoy the fights. Uh, If you haven't caught up on all the ADCC videos I did throughout the week and you are interested in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and in particular ADCC, I would definitely recommend checking them out. They all include a, a bunch of different screenshots from all the matches that happened, so you can see. Uh, what techniques were being used at the highest level right now, what's working, what isn't, and and, and learn some more about Jiu-Jitsu from there.